What is up? Welcome back to the show, the Dad Bod Brigade podcast. My name is Dylan. I am one of your hosts on this show. We are back with episode two, and I've got a good friend of mine here with me in the room today, Mr. Nick Fay. Nick, say hello. Hey, how's it going, guys? Welcome, man. Um, so quick background. I've known Nick here for about a year now. Yeah, it's been about a year. We uh, we play hockey together on our Sunday nights. Um, but Nick has got a really interesting background and obviously just a generally nice down-to-earth dude. Um, we thought he was super fitting for kind of what we're building here with the Dad Bod Brigade podcast and what we represent with fatherhood and masculinity and raising kids and everything else, especially with his background. I thought it'd be really cool to have on today. Um, so Nick was a Green Beret, served in the Army. He was a professional chef. He's a current strength and conditioning coach. Obviously, he's a dad, he's a husband, and he's a hockey player. But Nick, man, like let's uh, let's introduce you to the the listeners and kind of go through your background and see where it goes, man. Talk about some cool stuff. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I grew up in Illinois, um, small town called Woodstock, Illinois. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, no. It's the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Okay, um, and if you've been to Chicago, you have the city and then it sprawls out into the suburbs. And for a good long while, you can't really tell where the city ends and the next town begins. Yeah. Other than a sign on the interstate. <laughs> and then you get out to a part where it's a little bit more rural, um, further north and west. And uh, that's where Woodstock is. Nice. Yeah. The furthest west I've been in Chicago is the airport, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, we were definitely a lot further west than that. But it was it was like a 45 50 minute train ride on the Amtrak from okay. from Woodstock into the city and then, you know, go explore the city back in the day. Yeah. But uh so Woodstock is the home of the guy who created Dick Tracy. No kidding. So, uh, I believe he was born and raised in Oklahoma, but he, um, he moved to Woodstock, Illinois and basically did the comic out of his house for like 50 years. That's cool. I remember growing up reading that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, it's also the, the city, uh, square and a majority of the film of Groundhog Day was filmed in Woodstock with Bill Murray with Bill Murray. Oh, that's cool. So I I remember in high school, you know, Bill Murray was around town and, uh, it was, it was pretty exciting for the town. But, nice. Uh, so what, so born and raised there, what'd you guys do growing up there? Was it like farm area rural out in the country or it suburbs? W- it, it was, but again, you had that proximity to the city that you could get a little bit of that right. action as well. But it, it was mostly farm farmland. Yeah. Um, corn and soybeans. Nice. Basically. Um, now, that's kind of how we grew up uh, in sixth grade. Well, we moved in sixth grade to Woodstock. And prior to that, I'd lived in um, uh, Harvard, Illinois, which was a few miles up the road. Gotcha. We, you grew up playing sports or? Yeah, yeah. It Football was my main sport. Yeah. So my main organized sport was football. I played one year of basketball in high school just to show people I can make the team. <laughs> I I played on the B team for the sophomores. Um, whenever I would get the ball, I would usually get caught pretty quick and pick up my dribble, and I would be <laughs> shooting three-pointers from the half-court line. Yeah, yeah. Um, I played hockey, mostly like shinny hockey, so no pads. Um, through the rec department of the town they would put up uh, boards around the ponds at the city park and oh cool we, we run leagues and stuff out of there and uh what else did i do I, did, I wrestled up and through sixth or seventh grade played nice. baseball so would you play in football what was your what was your position well in high school i was a tight end and a receiver i really wanted to be a running back yeah so i was like the third string running back um, but I, uh, 
I got to play when I was in uh, varsity, I got to play JV and varsity because I played tight end and safety on varsity. And then I played running back or fullback because we had like a pro style offense. And then I would play fullback and then middle linebacker on JV. So I could play twice a week. That's cool. When I was a senior. I don't think they do that nowadays. They definitely don't. (laughs) They definitely do not. So I see that you not only played football in high school at that that level, you went on to play semi-pro football. Was this after high school, like immediately after high school? Or how did that work out? It it was not immediately after high school. It was probably a year and a half, two years. Um started actually playing in an indoor um, flag football league. And I ended up being quarterback. Nice. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to see, see how this goes. And I did really well, you know, because flag football is basically like, um, like skeleton. Drills, yeah, exactly. Right? Seven on seven. Um, so I ended up looking into tackle football and I was like, well, okay, well, you know, I'll go try to walk on this team and try to be a quarterback. If not, maybe I'll play another position. I can play wherever they need me to play. And, uh, I go out and I just blow it away and just like crush it. And and the guy was like, I don't know if did you play quarterback in high school? I'm like, dude, this is my first time ever taking a snap. Wow. In, in a practice, a, a, yeah. a game, anything. Um, but yeah, I played about a year and a half of that. In that time, I actually ended up getting a tryout with the Chicago rush, who was the professional arena team. Yeah. Um, and they were the arena champions at the time. That's wild. That's like, have you seen that Kurt Warner story, the movie? Yeah. That was, I mean, that's how he got his start, yeah. which is wild. I, it, you know, I grew up watching Kurt Warner play and I never realized that was his story until I saw that movie and I was blown away. That's super cool. Yeah. And, and you know, I was the least qualified quarterback at the tryout. Yeah. Far and away. I mean, majority of the guys had played high level D two or, you know, smaller D one schools. Typically I played tight end in high school. <laughs> That's funny. That's wild. That's a crazy story then. So you got out of that, you joined the army or what led you? Cause what led you for that so point? Football actually led me to the army okay. and it, and it did that because when I played my last game of, of semi pro football, I actually got knocked out uh, cold. I got the first down. <laughs> Sacrificed the body. I had, I had the, uh, I played like Brett Favre. He was my favorite, even though I was Same. a Chicago guy. Like Brett Favre, the way he played was like my dude, right? So I got knocked out. I actually ended up in the hospital. I, I mean, just so everybody knows, I did get the first down. I did not fumble. <laughs> uh, I got hit helmet to helmet right behind the ear hole and it, and it dropped me. Yeah. Um, I go to the hospital. I check myself out. I come back to the game. I'm like, I'm ready to go back in. You know, obviously I'm not like a super smart dude, but they were like, no, no, <laughs> we're not going to let you do that. Why don't you go sit over there? And it was freezing, you know, like when I was playing and I was, I was having a great game. We were in the playoffs and playing against this team of, um, they were basically cops. I, th- I think, yeah, they were sh- the Chicago lawmen, which that's, was, that's cool. Which was a team of cops. And they had dudes that played in the pros, division one. I mean, they had a lot of good players, but we were up 14 to nothing. And I had thrown two touchdown passes when this happened in the, in the first half. Needless to say, I was like, well, I think if I go to college, I can get the coaching that I need and maybe I can get into the arena league yeah. or, or something, you know, and I have buddies who after they graduated high school, they went and played professionally in Europe in Germany and Italy. And, uh, thought, well, maybe, maybe that's a route, you know? So I started applying to colleges and they're like, well, you did really crappy in high school. So (laughs) we're going to need you to take some college coursework and show us that you can actually complete classes. Yeah. So I did that. Well, while doing that, I took public speaking. I was like, well, I'll just knock it out here at the community college and I ended up doing a speech about the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, uh, mm-hmm. during World War II, right? So it's uh, basically the precursor to special forces or special operations. 
Gotcha. And the CIA. Okay. Right. Cause they had kind of like an operational ground branch type of deal. And then, um, they had like the clandestine kind of spook side yeah, as well right. right during World War II. And, um, so I, I started thinking, well, you know, I've already been knocked out cold. What if football doesn't work? Yeah. So I didn't have a plan B, <laughs> you know? So I started thinking, well, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I could be a fed. Maybe I could work for the FBI or something, you know? And, uh, I ended up, uh, driving by a, uh, a recruiting office one day, just kind of spur of the moment. I stopped in, I had saw Black Hawk down the night before. So I was like oh, super man. pumped. Yep. Um, I've done the majority of the odd jobs that I did in my early twenties were based off of my love of various movies. <laughs> It'll get you. So I, I did a short stint as a bouncer because I loved Roadhouse. Um, I did a short stint as a bartender at a Bennigan's because I loved cocktail. Oh, that's fantastic. And and then uh, here I am watching Black Hawk Down. I'm like, yep, I got to be a ranger. Let's do it. So I go into the, the recruiting office. I'm like, all right, so... I want to be a, I want to be a ranger and a sniper, you know, and, and this is in 2003. So the war's already going. Okay. On. So, yeah. I was so going to say, when was this that? Cause that would give some context. Yeah. And I'm, I'm about to turn 23 Okay. or I, no, I had just turned 23. I don't know. Anyway. So I go into the, uh, the recruiting office. I'm like, I want to be a, a ranger and a sniper. Uh, I just watched Black Hawk Down, so I know what's up. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, okay, so we got the perfect program for you. It's called 18 X-Ray. And, uh, you know, they're like Green Berets and Special Forces. And I'm like, okay, what is uh, Green Beret? Yeah. And I had seen Green Beret with John Wayne. I was huge, still am a huge John Wayne. I love to just come across like... Sons of Katie Elder or El Dorado or something like that. Or Quiet Man is one of my favorite of all time. Um, but I watched this little video that they had. My recruiter was a Patriot missile oh, yeah. thing, I think she was. Yeah. Uh, some, like, a, I don't know what they, they do, but that's what her job was. And so it's like, all right, sign me up. So you yeah. ship out. Obviously, you go to Benning. I do. So you yeah. go infantry. Because the 18 X-ray program was fairly new at the time, right? Like it wasn't before you had to kind of be in the infantry for so long before they'd put you through special forces selection and all that, right? Well, the 18 X-ray was actually kind of a um, a revamp program that they had started during Vietnam for special forces okay, uh, to help fill out the, the teams and stuff back in, in the Vietnam era. Gotcha. Yeah, they send you to to basic which is infantry and you do ait which for infantry it's it's a o set or one station unit training which mm-hmm. is basically like you just you don't leave you just do an extended amount of time yeah and with infantry you kind of just go into you know small unit tactics and stuff a little bit more in depth um for the remainder of the time and in the regular army there were certain service time and service requirements and rank requirements um there wasn't, I don't believe, like a branch requirement for special forces. But oh, okay. But you just had to be in for so long before you could say, hey, I want to go to selection yeah, and, and I'm, go there. I don't, I can't remember if, if you had to be a combat arms MOS. I, I don't believe you did because I think there were guys take, who would come from yeah. like culinary whatever and truck right. drivers that would make it. But um, So you get through selection, which most people don't. Well, so... So back up. (laughs) Yeah, back up. So part of the process is so the the contract basically guarantees you the opportunity to attend selection. Right. However, you have to meet those certain um, markers like you have to get through infantry basic training and then you have to successfully complete airborne school. Mm -hmm. Then you have to go through SOPSI, which was the special operations preparation and conditioning course. And then you go to selection. Yeah. And you were guaranteed that that slot and selection if you kept hitting all the 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 you know right marks along right. the way. Um, but they, yeah, you go to selection. I went in September, I believe. Uh, I think it was like nineteen days, twenty one days. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've changed it a couple of times. Yeah. So you get through selection, and then 
you still have like training to do. You don't just get thrown right into like the teams. You've got to go through a bunch of, you know, follow on training because <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong. I obviously wasn't a green beret, but once you get through selection, you've got to specialize in something within the teams, right? Yeah. So the first step is, is once you pass selection, you, you go through, you actually enter the, the qualification course. Mm-hmm. So within the qualification course, you have a small unit tactics section or phase. So, you know, guys who aren't super familiar with small unit tactics or infantry tactics, um, where you, you go and it's kind of like similar to probably a, like a mini ranger school. Gotcha. Maybe not as, um, you don't come out of it losing a ton of weight. Yeah. But, you know, you get the opportunity to plan and lead and learn how to lead and stuff like that. So you can be assessed as far as your capability or your willingness to, to learn. Um, then you would go into your MOS phase, mm-hmm. which you would learn. You know, we have an 18 Bravo, a Charlie, an 18 Delta, an 18 Echo. Um, those are your your main MOSs. Um I was a 18 Bravo, so that is a a special forces weapon sergeant. So basically, my job was um, as far as on the team, you know, weapons. Whereas you went through the course, you would learn, you know, as many foreign and, and domestic weapons, um, how to fix them, how to troubleshoot, all all that stuff. Yeah, because you would see any number or you know a plethora of of weaponry. Right overseas somewhere yeah um in addition to that you were typically the tactics guy as well so advising the commander on on tactics and responsible in conjunction with the engineer or the 18 charlie the base defense or something like that Mm -hmm. um so the 18 charlie would be like the explosive guy the engineer the carpenter the electrician nice so you get done with all the mos training you get put into a team. You go to Seventh Special Forces Group, right? No, no, no. Oh. The courses, courses like well, depending upon your your job, yeah, right. So you got Echo and Delta. Delta is a medic, so they go to basically like med school, vet school, dental school. Gotcha. Um, Echoes do um, all their combo stuff because eighteen Echoes a combo guy. So after after you learn that, you would do um, Robin Sage, which is the culmination exercise. Mm-hmm. At least when I went through, um, which would have been phase four, MOS would have been phase three. Scattered in there, you would do like your non-commissioned officer schools. Yeah. That SWIC or Special Warfare School um, Center and School would have. Yeah. You didn't have to go to the regular Army one and and be out of the pipeline or or training. Yeah. Um, So I did PLDC, BNOC, then we went to 18 Bravo, Robin Sage, which is our culmination exercise. Um, then what do we do? Language school. Mm. And then we did SEER. Gotcha. And then I made it. So I'm, I went to I, I went to group in March of 2005. Okay. So almost two years after you yeah. joined the Army is when you finally get to your first unit. And that was first time go on yeah. every course, not being held back at all. No no delay with any, with anything. Um, nice. So and that's rare too. Cause I know a lot of guys that went in with 18 x-ray contracts and didn't get through it and spent years toiling with injuries and selection and getting selected or not getting selected or even going through to their schools and then not passing their schools and then going back to regular infantry, that kind of thing too. So to go through one time pass and all that is, is phenomenal. So you get into your unit um, what's, what's, you know, you've got five deployments, so obviously we don't have time to talk about all of them, but talk about some of the things that you did, maybe some of the, the things you specialized in with some of the, I see one here, the far to tech. I don't know how you pronounce yeah, that. Sephardic. Yeah. So, and I don't, I believe they did away with them, but the groups used to have what was called a, a SIF or a CRIF. Um, it used to be called commanders and extremist force. It was typically a company. Each group had a company. Um, most of those companies would be forward deployed somewhere. And, and by that, I mean like 10th group SIF would have been in Stuttgart in Germany. Um, 
first groups is in Oki. Ours used to be in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. for seventh group. Although they, they had moved back to Bragg by the time I, I got there. But I went to Sephardic, so I, I never really remember what the the entire <laughs> wording of the, the acronym, acronym is. Of all the Army acronyms, dude, that might be the longest one I've ever seen. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's like a, um advanced, Special Forces Advanced Reconnaissance Target um, Analysis and Exploitation or something like that. Um, but, but it's a shooting school. Yeah. So it's like an advanced um, urban combat school, mm-hmm. hostage recovery, rescue, I guess. I don't know if I can say that or not. But So you've got pretty cool background in some of the things you did, too, while you were downrange. I see on some of this other stuff you've got here, some presidential details, some bronze star for combat. Uh, what are what are some of the things that really stood out to you with your time in the service, especially downrange and, and what your mission was when you guys were there? You can even, you know, specify like what country you might've been in when these were happening. Yeah. So when I was a, a, a young pup in group, we went to Iraq and we worked with the counter terrorist force in Iraq. Um, and, and to get into the company and you had to have gone and completed Sephardic. Mm-hmm. Um, I served with a lot of great guys, a lot of great guys there. Um, you know, that was kind of a, a direct action mission set, if you will. Was this still early 2000s? What year was this? This was 2006. Okay. So it was pretty hot and heavy in Iraq. Yeah. But again, I was, I was a youngster. Um, I had just gotten a group really. I was relegated to mobility so I was either up on, we had a minigun on the lead Humvee. So I would either be a minigun gunner or I would be a driver. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really get to do the cool assaulting stuff. Yeah. They were like, hey, Nick, you stay with the trucks. <laughs> That's, yeah, you got to earn your, you got to earn your keep, especially on the teams like that, man. There's a, that's just a high operation level. You do. Um, but yeah, I got, so I came back from that and I went to a, a different company actually. I ended up going to sniper school at that point. And then I I ended up deploying to Afghanistan and I had the opportunity. I believe this is right at the beginning of 2008. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to do counter sniper for um, President Bush when he came through. It was like the day after he was in Iraq and that Iraqi reporter threw his shoe. Yeah. At the president. Yeah. The famous shoe. So we were we were on high alert. Yeah. But he was he was talking to the task force guys, I think. Um, so th- there's a picture to me, and I'll send it to you. But I'm sitting up on this hangar, and it was freaking so cold. And we're in Bagram, and the and Air Force One is right behind me, and I'm sitting on this chair, and my my sniper rifle is there, and it was just miserable. You can't see my face because I have like the balaclava on and stuff. And uh, but it was windy, and it was oh, miserable. Yeah. And we were up there forever, and we just glass and everything that you could think of all around um and we were set up in different points but in the secret service i know you got a buddy who's a secret service but they didn't like anybody but their guys oh i believe it touching weapons yeah when the president is around yeah unless it's absolutely necessary however we did have we did have our our bolts because we were using bolt guns yeah uh we did have ammunition but we had to, until there was a credible threat, we had to kind of sit back and just glass yeah. with uh, with our binos. So are you on comms with these guys the whole time? We are not. Um, the, the Secret Service, I believe, had contact with like our, our senior non-commissioned gotcha. officer. I was an E6 or a staff sergeant at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we watched just like the president like go get back up on the plane. And then once he flew away, we were good. That's pretty cool. Yes, I, I one of my really good buddies. Uh, we'll probably have him on the show actually here soon because he he's got some really cool stories about that. But he was a Secret Service agent for for a long time, and he could tell some some cool stories. Man, we get some whiskey going, and they they're they're pretty funny. Those guys are cool though. I, I'm sure interoperability between teams like that, especially downrange and a, a threat kind of environment like that, it's a little a little tricky uh, for for them to navigate. But you you mentioned earlier too when we were talking before we came on about um some of the cool guys that you served with either either in the teams together same company or or something like that that are probably pretty well-known dudes now who uh, who are those guys yeah so in that company that um charlie company 
3rd Battalion, 7th Group. Uh, Tim Kennedy and I had served together. We were on different teams. Although the the train-up, my, my ODA was actually in South America when I got to the company. Mm-hmm. So they had no idea I was coming. I was like the newest dude in 7th Group. No guy who had spent so little time in group ever was sent to Sephardic. <laughs> it was meant for guys who had legitimate experience and knew what they were doing. And somehow they're like, I was an expendable 18 Bravo and they needed someone to fill the slot. And my SART major and the SIF SART major were like, yeah, I guess we'll send you to Sephardic. And, you know, I, I was just, I was, I'm thankful because I, I was a natural, <clears throat> excuse me, a natural uh, shooter. Mm-hmm. And I was able to pick it up pretty quick. But uh, yeah, I had no intention of going to the SIF. I didn't even really know about it. I, I honestly, I didn't think I was, I, w- I would go actually go to it and, and deploy with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Tim came in behind me. I think he was like a class or two behind me. And he was still pretty, I mean, cause he was doing his fighting while he was in the army too. So at that point, was he well known amongst the team guys as like for what he did with fighting and MMA or no? Yeah, there were, there were rumblings. That okay. There was a, a fighter. Yeah. Like a professional fighter coming, yeah. coming up through the ranks. Um, and I think they, as soon as he did, they requested him to come on over. But I mean, he was on a really, really good team. Yeah. So, and and none of those dudes gave two craps about his fighting stuff. I mean, obviously, there's that knowledge that that Tim had with regards to fighting at that time. You know, especially as a young pup in in special forces, where he he could take that knowledge as far as the the hand to hand stuff and, yeah. and help the company out, and then the company who had like some serious shooters could then in turn help him, which obviously, you know, they did, but his team was, uh, his team was awesome. Uh, John McPhee was his team sergeant and he didn't, he didn't give a crap about anything. Yeah. I actually, I read his book and that learned those names through his story there. Cause it was a pretty cool story that he had about his coming through the, the program and everything else. That yeah. was, that's cool. And the, the, the Bravo on that team, the other Bravo, yeah, I think it was, it was Ben Rios. he, was a stud yeah small little puerto rican dude he was a he was awesome he, he's such a good dude too um i think he works for glock now but yeah and then prior to that in the q course actually in that pldc b knock which was after the small unit tactics phase mm-hmm. um i met mike glover um you know g and f are close so yeah. we ended up uh in the same little class cooch yeah. For the PLDC BNOG. And we became pretty good friends, um, myself and some of the other guys, you know. And I, I was still obviously young to the Army. And so I was able to make friends with these guys who were come from like the 82nd or, or something, infantry guys. And then Mike, who was an infantry guy, but he was also a tomb guard. Um, Those are some squared away dudes. Yeah, they really were. And it, it definitely helped me because I could always turn to them. Yeah, and then we did the 18 Bravo course together. Very and cool. then Robin Sage, I don't think we were on the same time with Robin Sage, but Mike was actually my groomsman at my first wedding because, yes, I'm a typical SF guy, so <laughs> I've been married more than once. Um, but, yeah, he was one of my groomsmen. That's wild. At my first wedding. Did you guys have a bachelor party? No. No. Yeah, neither did I. It was no. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> Didn't ever have one. Yeah, in my... Uh, so I have three older kids from my first wife mm-hmm. and my son, oldest son just graduated high school. They, they live in Washington state now. Um, this is, this is a whole nother podcast. This, yeah, this, yeah. this would be more like a Dr. Phil type of, right. uh, or a Dr. Drew type of podcast, but he just enlisted as a 37 Foxtrot, which I believe is like psyops or something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So he's 18. That's fantastic. High school and then he's going to come in. And into special operations, which is which yeah, is good. I've got a, a bunch of buddies in the psyop community. That's that's good stuff, man. So you've got five deployments under your belt. You've been a you were actually also a, a special forces officer instructor for a while after all of this. What you know, you've kind of you were in for what ten years? Yeah, just shy of eleven. So my ETS date was in January. So I was what. Four months shy of 11 years. So what were some of the reasons you wanted to get out? And maybe what was like, what was your plan for when you were getting out? Because I remember when I was at, you know, in my life, when I was getting out of the the army, 
you know, I had already kind of made that decision. Nobody was really going to change my mind. I remember they brought me into my battalion commander's office who was really trying to get me to change my mind and stay in and, and make a career out of it. And I already kind of said, no, I'm, I'm doing it. Like our son Lincoln was born about a month or two later. I deployed and came home. He was almost walking. And that was when I joined, you know, I was married, but no kids. And so you join, you've got these, you know, really cool thing. Maybe I'd seen black Hawk down. Maybe it was something like that. You know, I don't remember at the time I, I joined cause I wanted to truly serve. And I think the same kind of reasons for you, but once I'd made that conscious decision of getting out, my family dynamic had changed. My life had changed. And the idea of being gone for my family was really the reason I got out. What were some of those for you at that point in your life? Well, the being away from home was exciting and hard, right? It's a, it's a challenge. You know, you're out doing what, what you want to do, but at the same time, you know, you're watching your kids grow up over Skype or whatever, whatever it was at the time, you know, and, and it takes a toll on you for sure. Did you have kids at that point? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you would because you said your son was graduating high school now, but, but yeah, for me, like as a young kid coming into the army, I mean, actually wasn't that young. I, I came in at like 25 years old. So I was, I was like the old man going through basic when I was there, but I just had these ideas of, yeah, of course I want to deploy and go do all this badass stuff in the military. I was in aviation. So we flew on helicopters. We were doing all kinds of cool shit downrange. And when the kid got involved, when our son was born, it's like, well, hang on. I don't want to watch him grow up through Skype. Like you said, I don't want to miss all of his milestones. I missed his whole baby phase. So our daughter was born last year and we joked that it was essentially like my first kid because I didn't know what to do with a baby. I'd never been around one, even though my son is now seven going on eight. I didn't know. So she was three months old, four months old, everything from almost a year old. I had no clue (laughs) because I missed all of that with my son. And that was for me, just the part where I I never thought about when I joined as to how hard that was going to be if, and when we had a family. And so that was for me, my final can't like straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, ah, no, I'm not doing this. I'm out. I want to, I want to be there when my kids are learning to walk or learning to talk, that kind of thing. And it is, it is hard. Um, because you know, you're, you're deployed for however long you come home, you have to readjust. Then you have to turn around and you're gone for training. You know, at least we were. Yeah. So it might be like a week or, you know, some late nights at the range, and then, you know, there might be something where you go away to to do a team training somewhere or a company or something like that and lead up to the next deployment, whatever it is, whether it was for us, South America or, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq. Right. Um, yeah. After I had already been divorced, um, remarried and then just getting divorced again in like 2012, um, I was an instructor for the 18 alpha guys, which is the officer candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is their MOS phase in the Q course. And I was a member of the, what was called the field team. So I, I helped run all the training exercises that they did and all the airborne operations and stuff like that. Um, I met my wife who I've now been with since 2012. And we have a a son who's close to Lincoln's age, you know, Rowan is, six he'll be seven this october um but she was a carolina girl and she, she, there's no way she was leaving north carolina hey man <laughs> that was i'm the carolina boy born and raised and we were down at fort hood and i always told my wife i was because she's not from here i was like hey when we get out of the army we're going back to north carolina like that's that's not a, an option <laughs> we're going back yeah. i can i can understand that and and you know and it's the the, the reason it really was i mean seventh group had moved because of the base realignment thing that they had passed in Mm -hmm. like 2005 we actually moved in 2011 which is why i went to the schoolhouse to be an instructor because my mindset was well if i'm gonna have to come back here and be an instructor like i don't want to move to florida you know establish a home serve there for whoever knows how long and then be recalled back to brag to serve three years as an instructor and then move back to Florida. Yeah. So I had asked uh, my Sergeant Major, I'm like, hey, put my name in for a SWIG tour. 
I'll, I'll do mine now. Yeah. And then, um, but yeah, I met my wife in 2012 and we hit it off. And then, you know, I kept on cause I didn't technically get out till 2014. But right. Knowing that I was going to get out, I, uh, I started thinking like, what could I do that would transition well for me? Give me some of the same structure, you know, just like every idiot out there is watching Food Network all the freaking time, you know, like <laughs> beat Bobby Flay or whatever stupid yeah. show, you know, I was like, man, cooking would be awesome. So this is the segue then. This is it. So you get out and you go to. Yeah, I go to a culinary school. Culinary school. So I went to a culinary school called the Chef's Academy, which was a satellite campus of a of an actual college, I think Harrison College, which is up in Indiana somewhere, I think in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And they had opened one up right off of 540 in Morrisville, like nice. where 40 and 540 yeah. meet. So I went there, it was about a year. Yeah, so I started ETSing and took, yeah, terminal leave four or five months yeah. prior to ETSing, mm-hmm. something like that. So yeah. I was able to start culinary school and still get paid by the Army. Nice. Which is nice, yeah. That is good. So you become a chef, a professional chef. Yeah. And you worked at a couple venues or just one venue in the area? So I started out with, my first job was with Urban Food Group at, at a restaurant called Vivace in North Hills. Mm-hmm. Um it's like a, a little Italian. I think I've been there before. Eatery. Yeah. Um, and then from there, because I was incredibly ambitious, which is something that, you know, drilled in me from my days in the military. I was very disciplined. I was very driven. You know, I, I only had one. I had like a mission. Yeah. I guess is, is the bottom line. And, and it wasn't to be a, a private or a line cook for years. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I spent this time in culinary school. I learned as much as I could. I aced almost everything in culinary school and and not to be braggadocious, but it it was just like that. Like I wasn't going to fail. Right. Mentality. I'm sure there's not a lot of special forces snipers running through culinary school up here too. There wasn't. There's a, there's a different level of compete that you would have (laughs) than your standard culinary student. Yeah, I, and uh, I hate to lose, man. I don't blame yeah. you. But but you know it. The, the the idea of the kitchen, so the traditional French kitchen was like modeled off of military unit. Yeah, essentially, right? You have the chef or the general, you have the sous chef, which are you know the second in command, and then you have like varying levels of privates, or you know you got your you know, station chefs, which are like your E4 mafia or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you got your privates who are down there just cutting vegetables and whatever. Yeah. But, um, so how long did you do this then? So you were sous chef and did you make it to an actual like chef of a restaurant? I did. Yeah, I did. I actually was the head chef or executive chef of busy bee cafe. Love that place. Um, now known as trophy tap yeah. room. But I ended up, I ended up there. So I started as a sous chef there. Okay. When the head chef job came open, I said I, I would like that job, and they gave it to me. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. But I got to do a lot of cool like beer dinners and stuff like that, and um, use a lot of ingredients. You know, try to pair with some of their beers. You know, I did like this goat dinner, and then I made. I don't know if you remember or if you ever had the opportunity, but in Afghanistan, they would make this like rice dish and it had like raisins in it and all this spices. Mm -hmm. And it was like amazing. So I would make like that with with goat and paired with some of their beers or or a beer that they wanted to feature. Right. Or uh, and then they changed the concept and they wanted to go to like a, a rotisserie chicken something or other yeah taqueria or whatever Uh uh-huh and then i was kind of really put off by it yeah and then we couldn't come to terms and they were like well we're gonna let you go yeah so i actually got fired (laughs) but i had a job the same day hey then i went down to um my buddy saif who's the chef at um and i can never remember the place but it's owned by the same guys that own ale house 
Lou um, oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, but it's a really nice restaurant on Glenwood South. Okay. So not Solas. No, 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 no. I don't remember. I haven't been down there. Since. It's below the ale house. Oh, okay. But anyway, I ended up there as the banquet chef. Okay. Um, and I did that for a little bit and then it was probably the best, the most enjoyable experience I actually had. And, and there's many a time where I wish that I hadn't left. Yeah. Because I ended up taking over this restaurant that was dying, but the money was really, really good. Yeah. So I ended up, uh, it, well, the chef business is hard. I can, I can imagine. And it depends on like where you want to go and what you want to do. Yeah. So you're kind of bouncing around and you may be in a place for a long time or you may be there for a short time. If right. something better comes up, you know, and you do your best not to burn bridges. And it's a stressful job, man. When you're working pretty much all day long, yeah. you know, because you're going in at like lunchtime. And then sometimes your line cooks aren't the most dependable people in the world. You know, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Yeah. So now you're having to either fill a hole or, you know, fire somebody and yeah. hire people that will actually show up to work. Yeah. And it, and it was incredibly frustrating. I can imagine. So you did that for a couple of years. Do you do anything in the culinary world now or you just kind of take advantage of that with you and the family doing barbecues and stuff now? Yeah, I don't. I don't do anything in the culinary world. Yeah. Although, you know, I have it in my toolbox. Of course, right? 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 That old adage, you know, yeah. put it in my toolbox. That's kind of like what I think of myself as, is like a renaissance man. I, you know, I've done bands. I've done, run my own DJ company. I've started this brand and this podcast, and I still work in the software world. And just kind of like master of all, jack of all, master of none kind of thing. But Absolutely. at the same time, it's like, you got to keep you got to keep hunting those things that interest you and the, the the things that fuel your passion and your fires and everything else. And so that's a good transition into the the last topic here that I wanted to go through with you is just you, you're now a strength and conditioning coach and you work a lot with kids developing all the way up to professional athletes and everywhere in between. And it kind of ties back into our mission statement and kind of the values that we represent here with the dad bod brigade is, you know, what it takes to raise strong kids and, you know, especially with sports and competitiveness and drive. And we were talking last time with Chris on, um, you know, what we like about our kids doing in sports or what they need to do better in and how, you know, most kids don't listen to their parents when they're trying to coach them and stuff. So you're a strength and conditioning coach now and you work with kids of all ages and you know, what, what are some of the, the things that you've taken away with either the, the drive that it takes or maybe what these kids that have that it factor maybe have, and that you're seeing in your, your, your experiences, your expertise now as a strength and conditioning coach with these guys. So, so the biggest thing that these, the kids that are successful, uh, well, let, let me back up and say that, we work with kids that are nine, 10, all the way up through pros, right? So right. with that, you get kids of every athletic skill level, yeah. I guess. There are kids that have started with the gym prior to, to me being there um, when they were younger in middle school or, or something that put the time and work in, right? Because really, at the end of the day, consistency is, is the biggest key. Hundred percent, yeah. Um, and it it is probably the hardest, and especially for for kids these days. One, you know, as a, as a younger kid, you're relying upon your parents getting you to the gym. Um, parents are trying to push their kid who may or may not want to go. Right. You know, it's it's hard work. Yeah. Well, and it's also the kids. Like you said, they may or may not want to go, and the parents it ultimately is up to them and up to us as parents as to finding that balance of how hard we push and how hard we just kind of let them be kids because you obviously don't want them having a traumatic childhood experience of your dad beating you to go work out for a sport you hated playing anyways. But at the same time, those, those life lessons that it teaches them, like you mentioned, consistency, showing up, doing it, doing the work when it's hard, doing it when it sucks. I mean, that's a life lesson for most adults that I know that think that they can go into the gym, 
and get a beach bod by just doing some arm curls, right? Like, no, you've got to, you got to stop doing that crap. You got to consistently show up the days when it sucks, the days when it's cold, the days when you don't want to go. And again, like as parents, it's an even harder dichotomy to, to break down because we're, we're trying to find that balance. I don't want to push him so hard that he resents me, but I also want to teach him how to work hard and how to show up when you don't want to, because you're going to have to do that all the way until you die. Like as an adult, you might not want to work every day, but you got to show up. Somebody's got to pay the bills. Somebody's got to put a roof over this house. We got to feed the kids. We got to all of this stuff. Right. And that's a, that's a tough lesson to teach without them actually having to experience it themselves. It it really is. You know, I think about like with Rowan, for example, and not just in sports, but just in general, like trying to build that work ethic or that mm-hmm. try to teach the lazy out of him, you know, cause it's easy to just kind of lay around. You yeah, know, man. Uh, path uh, of least resistance, dude. It's human nature, but there'll be times where, you know, my wife and I, not just the standard, like cleaning up after yourself, but you know, I'll, I'll push him towards like, Hey, don't let Mimi carry that lawn chair. I want you to carry it. Right. You know, um, you know, to everything, to, to showing compassion, like whatever a man should be and, and things were different when I was growing up, you know, it's, it's, it's way harder now, I think. Well, I I mean, I don't know what my dad went through, but, um, I don't remember anything but being competitive when I was a kid. And my son isn't necessarily that same way. Yeah. So how do I connect to that? Right. And I see kids in the gym and all I care about at the end of the day, like they don't care about the science of exercise. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They they just care about like, oh, maybe this will make me a better baseball player. Right. I think, I think the biggest thing that's killing kids is, is a focus on a singular sport at such a young age. Mm Mm-hmm. They should be playing multiple sports, which is how they become most athletic. They should right. be, you know, basketball, hockey, but also football, you know, run track, yeah. do something, play baseball. But um, at the end of the day, I just care that they move well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care how much weight they can lift because movement really is is going to translate onto the, the sports field or court or ice better than the amount of weight you can lift. You know what I mean? Right. When it's, it, it kind of transfers because I coach these kids in hockey too. And I, I try and keep them level headed because every parent has this idea that, Oh, my son's playing this, you know, triple a travel team. He's, he's going to be a pro one day and we're going to pay all this money to take him to all these fancy one-on-one coaching and strength training programs. And it's like the chances of your kid going to the NHL are like zero. I'm sorry to be that guy that says that, but what you want them to get out of all this work that they're putting in is that well-roundedness, that versatility, the ability to move and hopefully they take with them the importance of fitness and health and competitiveness and drive. And you know, the same things you were just talking about and moving your body. And I think that's, I mean, that's kind of what you meant, right? With kids doing more than just a single focus on one sport, that well-roundedness of all just general athleticism and fitness in general. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think you see kids out playing sports like we used to. Not at all. You know, obviously it's, it's a, a much different time. You know, it's harder for, for people to let their kid walk down the block these days. We were talking about that last, last time with Chris. Um, yeah. But it, it, uh, like when I was a kid, we played every single sport that could be played. Um, based upon the weather, basically. Yeah. In fact, when I was growing up, we had a giant barn because we lived out in the country. We had like 300 acres of land. And we turned the upstairs part of the barn into a roller hockey and basketball court. Nice. Because it was wooden and it was protected all year round from the weather. Oh, yeah. And it would be so cold in northern Illinois (laughs) in the winter. But we were up there playing basketball yeah we're doing something that's the thing man we were out in the yard playing football soccer baseball street hockey basketball like you name it if we weren't running through the woods 
pretending to be soldiers <laughs> or lighting shit on fire in people's yards. We were playing sports of some sort and every single kid in the neighborhood was doing it, whether they were girl, whether they were boy, we were all just out there running wild, having a good time. And that's what I remember most of my childhood with sports and playing and just, just being outside. And that's another thing that I've been trying to get, you know, part of this mission statement, part of our like, kind of grand idea of this thing. Maybe eventually we, we turn this into a program for boys or even for guys like grown men that just want to get outside, want to learn some of these, you know, bushcraft or survival or more, more, learn more about fitness, learn more about strength and conditioning or learn shooting, hunting, fishing, all these different topics that I feel like you and I grew up doing. It was just what we did. It wasn't, it wasn't something that like we went to the special coach to teach us how to shoot or hunt or fish or play sports. We just did it because we were kids. And I think that's kind of like what, like what you were saying, this, Nowadays, it's just kind of lost on kids. I think it's a lot with, you know, you can blame it on social media. You can blame it on, you know, technology, those kind of things. And again, human nature's path of least resistance. I think you can blame it on a lot of the parents nowadays, too, that aren't just letting their kids go out and be kids. And, and Chris was talking about the school that he sends his son to up in Kentucky last week. It's a nature school. And those kids are outside rain, snow, shine, it doesn't matter. 90% of their curriculum is outdoors. And I bet you it does wonders for those kids. And that's kind of what we're, we're, we're talking about. And we're wanting to kind of start bringing people in that specialize in these things and, or believe in them like you do, obviously your background helps. Um, and I mean, you could probably answer this, like what of your background in terms of like the military or, special forces or being a chef has helped you kind of instill some of these things into, into your son. Now that he's at that kind of perfect age to be his mind molded into, you know, what eventually will turn into a, a good human being and a strong man. You know, honestly, I think, I think the military, the, the fitness coaching, the culinary work. Yeah are all facets of, you know, who I am based on, on what I, I gathered from them throughout the years. But honestly, what I remember and what I think about the most when, when Rowan, Rowan's at that age, you know, where dad hung the moon, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I have to, I have to capitalize on it as soon as I can before it goes away or before it lessens, you know, when he gets more into, Hey, I'm going over to the friend's house or whatever. And you know, it's more about peer group. Cause yeah. I, I remember when I was a kid, my dad would take us fishing at the lake and we would, we, we had my grandma's old pop-up camper. And I remember the raccoons fighting under the camper trying to get scraps, you know, and we would be out there and there'd be like two raccoons that were like super nice. And who knows if they were freaking rabid, yeah, you know, but then at night they're, they're fighting under the camper. And then I just remember, I remember like bow hunting with my uncle and we didn't get anything. Yeah. And I remember, you know, pheasant hunting later on with my dad. And I remember as a kid, going out you know we had so much property that i would be like on a friday i would have like a bag of beef jerky my knife well, well santa brought me uh my first 12 gauge and a compound bow Ooh. uh when i was 12 for christmas i like it, it was the best christmas <laughs> but i would gather up all my all my tools and weaponry yeah and i would just go into the woods and i would come back on sunday yeah and I would only go out with like beef jerky and I would just learn it. And where I grew up was close to the original Gander Mountain store oh, cool, yeah. in Wilmot, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So it was like right over the border. And um, so we would take a trips there all the time. And I, I get like these, you know, hide tanning kits that I never really used because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And uh, they would just sit there, but I just loved them so much. And my, my stepdad, my, well, my parents got divorced when I was young, so. Uh, my stepdad is Native American, right? Ogallala Sioux from the Lakotas, right? Yeah. And um, so I grew up loving that that culture, 
So I would have, I would, I would do nothing but just like walk around in like buckskins. That's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, I had a bow and arrow in my hand all the time or a shotgun or a pellet gun. Um, I rode horses all the time. I, I started making like when I was in sixth grade, I started making my own like tack and, and bridle, uh, um, stuff for the, for the horse. Right. And then on my, my dad's side, my, my biological dad's side, he, um, my aunt married a guy who owned a farm. So I started working at a farm too. Yeah. You know, and I did jobs like pulling calves out of birthing houses if they didn't survive. Um, you know, I would do it with a, a, a cousin and he would, or I would distract the mom while the other pulled it out, threw it on the, on the four wheeler trailer. Um, and I just think about like all those experiences like that. And I think, well, I, I can't give all of those to Rowan. Yeah. But I can give some, I can give the, the fishing and camping trips. Absolutely. You know, I can buy a, a little camper tent for a hundred bucks on Amazon that fits the back of the truck. So we don't have to sleep on the ground. Yeah. Um, but you know, and now we're watching this like interactive bear grills show on Netflix. Oh man. My son loves that thing. And, uh, and it's just getting rowing more into it. And he already likes fishing. So like, you know, going out to falls Lake, you know, we need, we need to make more of an effort to do that. Yeah. And that's the thing too. We mentioned last week with Chris is like, I'm not an expert in any of this, right? These are, these are topics that I feel very strong about in terms of raising the kids and even myself as a grown man becoming better at, because I realize the importance of it. I realize the the good that it does to your soul as a, as a, as a man, as a human. Um, and then how important it is for the kids to have those experiences because of what it does to you as you grow up and you can look back on this and be like, yeah, I learned how to camp. I learned how to hunt. I learned how to fish. Like I could fight. I'm, I'm a, I'm a strong masculine man now because of my experiences. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a paid for kind of coach. It can be a camping trip with dad that he'll never forget. Or, or, you know, like you said, he's at that age now where you hung the moon and that's kind of where I'm at as well. And we want to make that, that that core memory for him that he can fall back on and he'll learn those lessons too. resiliency. You know, you're going to get kicked in the teeth a billion times in life and you got to learn how to deal with it. You got to learn how to make that be your motivation for being better. So like you said, when you got out of the, the special forces, if you were being cream beret sniper, you were like, I'm not going to fail culinary school. That's the last thing you were going to do is fail that shit. You were going to fly, you were going to pass that with flying colors no matter what you did. And that's because of that drive and that competitiveness that you had that I just don't think a lot of kids have today. And it sucks because it was something that like my parents used to always tell me is like, you know, oh, we did this hard stuff so you don't have to. And it's always like this idea of like the next generation should have it easier. And it's like, yeah, but if you keep doing that, then the next generation is just going to be weaker or they're going to be dumber or they're not going to have these, these common sense, you know, mentality that, that we have today. And I I've seen that from, you know, the past generation with my parents to my generation now to my kids generation. It's, it's very obvious. And I think that was kind of the motivation in, in my mind and in, in wanting to get this off the ground and start talking about it. And I think, like I said, you know, maybe long-term goal with this is to create some type of program with, boys or grown men that want to come out and learn these things. We'll do some events. We'll bring some people in, bring some expert experts in. We'll, we'll definitely have you come out and do some type of whether it's bushcraft or shooting or hunting or any of the, the, the topics that we've gone over. But I think these are all fantastic, man. And, um, and, and honestly, that's, I mean, really it's just, you know, as far as like a, being a dad and trying to raise, you know, having a, a young son or even a daughter, you know, to, to be strong and resilient and smart. And, you know, it's, I believe my, my son will get there, you know, but it feels like this day and age kids like don't even know how to look both ways before they cross the road. Right. You know what I mean, yeah. So I, I honestly, you know, the, the army and all those stuff are just like tools that I can use when I'm out there with them. You know, I'm not talking about, well, I'm going to take him to Sears school. Or yeah. Something. Right. Take him camp slappy and, 
you know, shown the ropes, but it builds a foundation. It it really does. Yeah, it it does. And it's hard. It's hard with all the the media, TV, everything, you know, and and that's how you can kind of connect. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, then your sports and everybody's so busy and mom and dad have to work these days, both of them just to make sure that everybody's taken care of. You just got to find that time. And honestly, we as dads, we just got to stop being lazy. Absolutely. I, I know. I know. You know, I felt myself being so lazy for so long, you know, and just complacent Yeah. in my station in life. And then I see the insanity outside and I'm like, well, it's time to get to work. Yeah. I, I need my son to be able to, to do, you know, X, Y, and Z so that he can survive and then he has that foundation like you're talking about so that he can he can pass that on to his kids and hopefully you know the bloodline never loses yeah loses it well that and god knows what the hell the next chapter of life is going to bring for these kids when they're our age dude so we better give them as many tools as they can at this point to be able to deal with whatever shit's coming their way absolutely you know and and i'm thankful and i think i told you a story you know like with with my my wife, she you know she'll take my son to church and, and build that spiritual foundation with within the actual physical confines of the church yeah. itself. Right. And I'm not so much of a church goer. Plus, I'm Catholic and they're Baptist and right. Um, but I reinforce or I try to reinforce. You know, even if it's saying grace before a meal. You know, if if something good is happening or you know, we see the trees outside and we, you know, we're thankful and try to reinforce those things that he's learning. So that he has that spiritual background, yeah. which, you know, is the basis for basically our morals. Right. You know, good so, versus evil, right versus wrong. Yeah. He, you know, he, he needs that, that foundation as well. And, and, you know, my wife is, is really good about that. And now it's my turn to take him out into the woods basically and start turning him into a man, turn him into a man, man. That's right. Yeah, man. Well, I think, uh, we'll wrap it at that, but we could do several hours of this dude. It's yeah, always, we really could. I, I mean, I, I could, I could go into depth probably about each deployment a little bit. Uh, I worked with these French guys in Afghanistan once. Yeah. Fred and Igor was, was not the real names. <laughs> that doesn't sound like French names. <laughs> but they were, they were, I think, Air Force commandos for the French. Nice. Um, we created this sniper school for the commandos one time, which is obviously a whole other story. But, yeah, you know, those guys were cool. And then I spent like a solid year and a half in South and Central America, you know, because language school, yeah. Spanish was my language. We didn't get interpreters like other groups. <laughs> You know what I mean? So yeah. we, we had to do immersion training, basically. Oh, gosh. To, luckily, we had, like, Puerto Rican dudes. And one of my very, very good buddies is actually from Bolivia, who was on my team. Nice. So we could we could get by, but... Yeah, there's there's several other topics we could uh, we could do on just completely different episodes altogether here with that. Absolutely. And, and, I, and like I told you before, I, I love the mission. I, th- I think, uh, you know, and it's got me into looking into things like... You know the Y guides or something. We went out and did this little thing at Camp Canada, and yeah, um, just anything to to start getting that same experience that we had when we were kids as a base. Yeah, and that's that was the idea when I was kind of spitballing with an eventual type program. Here is everyone was like, "Oh, you mean like the Boy Scouts?" I'm like, "No, dude. Like, I'm not talking about merit badges and uniforms. I'm talking about like." Teach him how to be a man. Teach him how to go out in the woods and survive. Teach him how to, you know, fight with his hands. Teach him, you know, all the things that that we learned as kids just by being kids. Not because we were put in a program to do it, but because you had to. Like, we had to learn how to fight or we got our ass beat as a kid. It was just that. And the kids don't do that nowadays. And I think they should. Because a lot of people run their mouth without ever having gotten punched in the mouth for something they've said before. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) But... Yeah, man. Thanks for coming out, dude. I really appreciate it. Um, we'll be getting this out here to you guys soon. Episode two of the Dad Bob Brigade. I appreciate you guys for listening. Uh, make sure you check us out online, dadbodbrigade.com. Our Instagram is at dadbodbrigade. Um, Mr. Nick Fay, once again, thanks for coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. And um, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks so much for listening.